Good to be with you guys. It is a real privilege to stand uh, and share with you this morning um, and just to be here on this team and this staff now to be welcomed into this family. My, my wife and I have loved this church for a really long time. Over the last several years, God has had us uh, as native Oklahomans displaced in places like Austin, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, and Louisville, Kentucky. We've been all over the place, and uh, last several years we've loved this church because when we would come home to be with family for holidays or vacation, uh, yes, we vacation in Oklahoma because we love this place, um, we would come to worship here, and we would be so proud of the gospel missional sort of ministry coming out from among you that we just would look jealously in from all the places that God would have us and go, man, we're so thankful for what you're doing in, in Oklahoma City, our home city. We're grateful for this church. And I would let Josh know that and the team know that as I would stop in and make a pit stop. And uh, really had no idea what God was doing in my life until about a year ago, there began to be some new desires emerge, new conversations happening and um, God's surprising providence sort of knitting together some conversations with leadership here with Josh. And, and one thing led to another. And uh, we just found God's will was sort of in this thing and, and stepping on this team. And it's, I'm still kind of pinching myself to go, is this really happening? You know, is this really happening to get here, to drop down some roots in a city that we love and with a church that we've loved for a long time? I just want to say um, thank you to you as the church um, because our faith has grown because of you. You may not know what you've done to us over the years. You hadn't even known who we were. But stepping in this room to worship with you, our faith has flourished because of you. To, to be with such a Jesus-loving, kingdom-seeking people, our faith has grown because of you. And so now to kind of join this pastoral team uh, is just a real deep privilege for my family and I. And so I just want to say thank you for letting us be a part of this whole thing. I want to introduce you to this family I'm talking about. They're not people that I've just made up. Um, they're real. And so uh, I've got a picture on the screen of... Uh, my son, my newest son, Asa, he's uh, two months old. He's our fourth child. He was just born. And so little Asa. And then here's the rest of our tribe on the next screen. Uh, so our oldest, Liv, she's six. And then the next is four, Scarlett. And then that's little Ezra. He um, is almost two years old. And this is one of the few shots we have where he doesn't have like a massive, you know, bruise on his forehead, a massive bump on his forehead. He lives his life like a kamikaze pilot. And... Um, and it's incredible. So we've had 30 seconds to snap a shot where his forehead was clean. And so this is what we got there, uh, the best version of Ezra. And then that's my wife and I. We've been married for 10 years. Her name is Emberly. And when I met her, I let her know that I think uh, her name is real hot. Uh, I love her name, Emberly. And she goes, well, good. I'm glad you like it. It's the only one I got. Uh, and I said, well, I'm, I'm in on it. And so uh, the rest is history. We've been married 10 years, and uh, that's, that's our family. And so we're thrilled, thrilled to be here with you guys. This morning, I've been given the task uh, of finishing up this little journey we've been on for the last several weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for now nine weeks, and we're finishing this thing up today. It's been a joy of kind of traveling with you through this series and seeing the way that God has helped us look at so many hard passages and think about topics that we would rather not deal with very oftentimes in our hearts and our minds, questions that we have that we want answers to, but then when we get answers, we, we wish we didn't have the answers. That, that's been the book of Ecclesiastes for us. And so Ecclesiastes is one of those books of the Bible where God has given to the church, he's given to the skeptic, he's given to the doubter this proof that at the tension points in our life, at the places where we have pain and we have questions and we have confusion, he's not, he's not forgotten us there. The book of Ecclesiastes is proof that, that God hasn't left us 
to our questions, our pain. He sees us, he knows us, he's familiar with us. And he doesn't just see from afar, he's, he's hands-on. He wants to speak to those things, not just see what we'll do with them, but he wants to speak to those things, enter into our life. And that's exactly what he's done with this word from Ecclesiastes, right? And so for the last several weeks, we've seen that the writer of Ecclesiastes has conducted, as we've said multiple times, this good life experiment. What he's done is he's propped up this good life experiment, something that all of us are familiar with, something that all of us are chasing after. And he's done it by chasing after sex and wisdom and wealth and humanitarian works and anything else he could get his hands on, anything else that has the appearance of life in it, anything else that has the appearance of fulfillment and satisfaction in it, he's chased it. But then he's shown us what we all already know to be true. It can't hold you. Those things can't hold you. Those things in and of themselves, they can't hold you. They don't define you. They, they can't deliver on what it seems like they offer. And so he says over and over through the book, meaningless. It's all meaningless. As much money as you can have, as much wisdom as you can have, as much pleasure as you can find, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like trying to grab for smoke. It's, it's vanity, he says. And it's not like we're just taking his word for it as we read his homework. The cavity in our own chest of discontent testifies to his words. We see it's true in our our own mind and heart. And so the questions that he's been propping up with us, propping up for us rather, for 11 chapters, he's he's now going to start to give us what we've been wanting all along. So what? I see what you're saying is true, but now we're left with a question for all the questions you've asked us, writer of Ecclesiastes. So what then? What do I do with all of this? If it's all meaningless, am I just left to that? In the resolve we've been looking for for the last 10 weeks in this book, he's now going to give us in the closing chapters, chapters 11 and chapter 12. We're going to look at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 today and find the answer to the so what question. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Ecclesiastes Chapter 11, we're going to look at the end of chapter 11 and then verse 12. And I want to begin our time by just reading our text, and then we'll jump in from there. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, word of Jesus speaks to us like this. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For your youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and your years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Skip down to verse 13. For this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of God. Just a few months ago, uh, when I was still living in Austin, Texas, I went to my barber um, to get a haircut because that's what you do there. And so I went to the barber shop and uh, sat down with the guy I'd been going to for several months. He knew me. I knew him. Jose is a great barber. 
And he knew, based on the months I'd been there, I'm not one of those talkative guys in the barber chair. Like, he's going to ask me a bunch of questions, and I'm going to give him answers, but I really don't want to. What I'd rather do is just kind of be the guy who would come in, sit there, smile, be polite, sure enough, get my hair cut, and really not talk a whole lot, say thank you, give him some money when it's over, and then leave. And I know some of you are judging me, but, but you've been there too. You know it, right? It's the same thing at the barber as it is at the dentist, you know? How am I going to answer your questions? My mouth is propped open, right? I, I just want to say thank you and have a good smile and leave, right? And so my barber, he kind of knows this about me. And so this particular day, I'm sitting in the barber chair and um, he starts in with a casual enough conversation, one that I was happy to entertain. We start talking about UT football, lived in Austin, start talking about the upcoming season and all that was to come with the new coach. But the conversation ended pretty quickly because there's not much to talk about. They don't have a lot of hope and they're not good and the new coach won't deliver either. Amen, man. It's unbelievable to be in the homeland again. And, uh, and so the conversation kind of died. And it was that space in any conversation where you've been there before. It was like, okay, this can be the moment where we shift to a new conversation. Either I'm going to step in and break the ice and go a different direction, or he's going to do that. But it was really clear at this moment we were having a standoff, you know. Neither of us were interested in breaking into the next conversation. It was just going to end with UT football because really there's nowhere to go from there. And then um, it was just sort of two minutes of hearing the clippers in my ear around my head. And then he spins the chair around and he comes in front of the chair and he locks me in the eye. And, and I thought, this is an interesting moment. We've never done this before, Jose. <laughs> and uh, he locks me in the eye and he goes, I have been thinking what's the purpose of life? <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to get a haircut, you know? Like, I'm the, I'm the not talk guy. And, uh, and so I, I, here's what really happened. I looked around because I thought, am I on some sort of edition of, like, punked pastor's moment here where they're like, gonna, you know, Ashton Kutcher's going to come out and say, gotcha, we did it, you know, you failed, you lose your job. <laughs> and so I thought, man, I've got, I've got to take this moment. Like, this is a script moment. You know, I've heard about these before. And uh, so I start in, you know, I said, he was obviously serious about this question. So I said, I mean, I believe all of life is about God's love for me and Jesus. And I just started kind of unpacking the gospel for him, that God's been good to me and Jesus. And then all of my life now is about declaring and demonstrating with my whole life, the goodness of Jesus to my family and friends and my neighbors even you, Jose. And so I started unpacking that. He had a couple of questions back for me about that. I started kind of responding. And this whole kind of weird thing happened in the room where even other people started peering into the conversation. And Jose was just kind of locked in on me because I don't think he expected me to bring the Jesus bomb out, you know? Like I, we hadn't talked about what I did or that I was a Christian before this moment. It just sort of was all happening there. And this goes on for about five minutes. And then I kind of stop, and he didn't have a response. And he kind of locks me in the eye again and he goes, so, so the back, do you want it tapered or squared? <laughs> tapered, Jose, always tapered. But he asked this question, the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Obviously something he'd been thinking about, it, it had caused angst within him such that he would ask a relative stranger. I mean, I'd only been going for a few months, but it was bothering enough that I'm just, I'm just going to bring this out and interrupt the entire haircut. It's a question that all of us have, isn't it? What's the purpose of all this down here? What are we doing? I think this is the reason why you're in the room today. 
Whether you believe what we're talking about or, or not, you've, you've heard something enough to say, I want to get in that room because I think there's something there that can answer some of the questions that I have. The meaning of life, it's a question that for some of us you have resolve with. For those of us you don't have resolve to this question, you're in here doing some seeking, but there's others of us that you've had some answers to that question, but that you're, you're, questioning those, you're questioning that resolve that you previously had. This is a question that kind of comes up over and over. It finds like, like a cycle. You have a resolve and then you don't, and then you have resolve and then you don't, and you have resolve and then you don't. What's the purpose of life? We come back to this question all the time. And it's for this question, this is exactly why the book of Ecclesiastes was written. This is exactly what the writer's been unpacking for us through this entire book. God's not caught off guard by your dilemma and your angst here. In fact, this is the very reason he's spoken. What's the meaning of all of this? This is exactly what he's speaking to. And so as he winds down this book, as he wraps it all together, he's going to speak to all of us in the room, young and old, young and all. He's going to speak to all of us in the room. He's wrapping up all of his comments, and he's going to speak first directly to the young, to those who have strength, to those who have vibrance, to those who, who are caught up in the, the, the midst of their life of character formation and life decisions. He's going to have some words to you as he wraps all of this up. But then he's going to pan back out at the end of the book, and he's going to speak to young and old, to all of us. He's going to speak on the end of the matter, what, what, what all of this is for, what all of this is about, what all of this is pointing toward. He's going to speak to that. And so the end of the book kind of has this tone with it. And, you, and I think you'll catch it as we read it. It has this tone of, of sort of a grandfather, right? This grandfather who's had his family at the house and now they've spent maybe a holiday together or they've spent some good time together and everyone's packing up their bags. Everyone is getting their keys. Everyone's about to leave. And as he does, he kind of sees the people who mean most to him leaving. And, and all of a sudden he wants to speak up and say, hey, hey, I've been thinking about some stuff. And before you go, I, I have something to say. I'll have something I want you to keep in mind. A couple of things maybe five things, but there's some things I've seen as I've lived life and, and I want to share them with you. That, that's the tone of Ecclesiastes. And so let's look at the end of chapter, chapter 11, where he first speaks to the young. He, he first speaks to the youth in the room. The room and it's not just kids here. He, he's going to open up youthfulness and, and you'll see how he does that, but he's going to speak first to the young and here's how he speaks. He's going to shape his words to the young in the form of three callings, three, not two, three. Three callings. The first is going to be a call to rejoice, and then this call to remove, and then this call to remember. He's going to speak in the form of three callings or three points of action. And it begins in verse seven with this first call, this call to rejoice. Look at it with me. In verse seven, he says, Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so maybe you can hear this grandfatherly tone already. It's what's a grandfather who's seen some stuff, who's been around the block. He really wants his grandkids. He really wants his family to rejoice. But he also says, but one day you're going to be like me. He says, but remember the dark days are coming and they're going to be many. Go ahead and have a good time. Head out and live your lives. But someday your back's not going to work. <laughs> someday you're going to be taking some pills to help your mind work, but you can't remember what they're called. 
go ahead and have a good time. I want you to rejoice. And you can tell that he's serious about rejoicing because in the span of three verses, he actually commands to rejoice twice. In the span of three verses, he says rejoice twice. So here's what he's saying. To those of you who are young, to those of you who have life and strength, to those of you who have breath, and you can still enjoy the pleasure of feeling the sun against your skin. It's sweet for the eyes to see the sun, he says. For those of you in the room like this, he says rejoice. Rejoice, be glad. There's reason for you to rejoice because it is God who's given you your life. You haven't come from anywhere. You're not random. You're not an accident. Even if you were surprised to mom and dad, God's given your life. God has stamped your life. God has supplied your life. There's reason for you to rejoice. Rejoice, he says. Now notice he's speaking here. If you've been with us, he's speaking differently than he has to the rest of the book. The rest of the book has had this sort of somber, reflective tone over all of it. He said meaningless over and over and over again. In fact, he said before that it's those who rejoice and laugh, they are the fools. And those who go to the house of the morning, they are the wise. Because up to now, he's been speaking with only life under the sun in view. If all we have is this down here that we can see and touch and smell and taste, then all of this is meaningless. But now he shifts his tone. Now he begins to speak with a command to rejoice. And here's why. Because now for the first time in the book, he's speaking with God in view. He's speaking with God in view. It's not just life down here under the sun. There's more than this. There's something beyond the sun. God is in view. He's the giver of life. And now that changes everything. That changes everything. So now the pursuits of the book of sex and wisdom and wealth and work and family and humanitarian deeds and all the rest, now all of those find their place and they have meaning because we see that in them, they aren't vain ends that we're supposed to look to them for what only God can give. But we look to them as gifts that God has given that point us back to God, the one who defines all of it. So now it all changes. You can actually and really, not plastic and self-medicating, but you can actually and really rejoice. You can rejoice. Look at what he says in nine. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know first of all that God will bring you into judgment for these things. And so he actually says, rejoice. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Get after life. And then he brings up judgment. And then he brings up judgment. And listen, he's not bringing up judgment here. This is so critical. He's not bringing up judgment here to be some sort of moment of cosmic killjoy. He's not bringing up judgment so that we would picture God as this bully who's looking to squash us and pounce at any moment he can. That's not why he's bringing up judgment. He's bringing up judgment to those who are young so we have a long frame, a long scope of where we see our life is actually headed. This whole thing is going somewhere. It's going to stand before God one day. God's the giver of life, but also all of life belongs to God and will be given back to God. And so he's helping us see the long scope of where our life is headed so that we don't waste our years in things that don't matter. Where's this whole thing going? He's, he's bringing in judgment so that we see, oh yeah, that's where life is going. It belongs to God. It's for God. So you don't have to define yourself. You don't have to go find yourself. You don't have to go prove yourself. Those things have already been taken care of because God is the supplier of your life. And so he's bringing this in to protect us, right? He's bringing us in to protect us from, 
from vain pursuits of trying to find pleasure in broken sex outside of covenant marriage that only fosters and multiplies insecurities and unhealthy codependencies. He's saying sex is a gift from God. It's good. It's, it's beautiful. It's sweet. But, but there's a way it can be misused and misseen in a way that it's only going to wreck your life. He's protecting us. He, he's saying that this is going somewhere. He's protecting us from thinking that we have to go find our life and just the, the acquisition of wealth and, and, and a fit body image to say that we're going to be a, a proven before the praise of men because look at what we have and look at who we are and how beautiful we are. He's trying to protect us from getting the praise of men of which you will have never enough of and there's no end to proving yourself. You're just exhausted there. He's saying, you you don't have to go that way. You don't don't have to prove yourself. God has already proven you because he's made you in his image and given you life. And so he brings up judgment here. He brings up the fact that our lives will one day stand before God, not to depress us, but to really bring us into the depth of what he's commanding. He's saying, you can rejoice, really rejoice. Don't sell out to things that look like there's rejoicing, but can't deliver on the back end. Give your life to things that are really full of joy and depth and meaning and beauty and purity. Rejoice. His language is on purpose. He says, let your heart cheer you. He really means that. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes while you're young, while you have creativity, while you have vibrance, while you have strength. Get after life. Live boldly. Live courageously. Take risks. He's saying this. Whatever pleases your heart, get after these things. But do so submitted to God and for the purposes of God. And so here's, here's something that I find interesting. One of the major critiques that our culture has against this current generation, the youthful ones now, the millennials, they call us, those under 35, I'm a part of them. (laughs) One of the major critiques that culture has of us is to say for all the fire, for all the passion, for all the deep burden for causes and for social justice, for all of that, The critique is, there's a lot of talk, but there's very little follow through. There's a a lot of talk, there's a lot of big game, but there's not a lot of work ethic. In fact, what they're going to say is, I see among the millennials this mentality of entitlement, that we're owed something maybe for all of our passion and all of our vigor and all of our critique of the older generation that's handed down to us something busted. They're saying, hey, you can talk a big game, but there's not a lot of follow through. You talk about activism, but you stay seated. You, you talk about some things, but there's not a ton of movement. Now, here's the deal. We can argue that. There's a place for that. Coffee Slingers is around the corner. We could argue that, but here's what I also know to be true. I've been doing ministry for 13 years, not a ton of time, but enough to see something. And mostly it's happened with young adults and college students, postgrads. And and most of us in the room are sitting in the want-tos of life. Most of us in the room. So you want to be a godly man. You want to be a godly woman. You want to have a godly marriage. You want to to make a difference. There's businesses you want to start. There's angst you want to have for mission. There's, There's all kinds of things you want to do. But also here's what I've seen as I've had conversations with people all over the place. A few of you are actually taking steps to attain any of that. So you have a lot of ambition, a lot of angst, a lot of desire, and maybe you have taken some steps, but here's also what I've seen a lot of, even in my own life, 
When I take some steps to try to attain the wants of life, I find that it's not happening as quickly as I want it to or that there's a lot of, a, a lot of pushback on it, and so I just give up early. I think we just give up early. How many things have you really sought after and you could have had them, but, but you know you just gave up too soon? And so what ends up happening, I think, for a lot of us in our youth, in our, in our youngness, is that we'll just save the want-tos for really cool conversations over coffee and go, man, look at my ambitions. Aren't I deep? I have a journal with leather on it. <laughs> but it just stays there. It, it just stays there. And the, the want-tos, what ends up happening is life gets the best of us, years get the best of us, and then we look back and we go, oh my gosh, I've been saying I want to do this for so long that now the tyranny of the urgent has taken over, responsibility's taken over, and now the want-tos have just turned into I wish I would've's. But I'll still say I want to because I'll get to that, I promise. And so here's what the text is saying. Those of you who are young, get after life now. God has given you the gift of youth and vibrance and creativity. Get after it. You have dreams, pursue them. You want to be a godly man, a godly woman, get after that. You only have one life. You only have one of these things. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Rejoice. He says to the youth, rejoice. God's given you life. But the second calling, he moves from rejoicing, this call to rejoice, the second calling in verse 10, this call to remove. Look at it with me. He says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for your youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He says, remove vexation from your heart. Okay, so I don't know when the last time you used the word vexation was, but I'm guessing it's been a while or never. Right? Uh, this is not a vocab word we're used to tossing around uh, after church. So, so vexation means stress, anxiety, pain. And so he's saying, remove these things from your heart. Get, get rid of these things. Okay, so if you're like me, this week that I was studying this, I read this and I go, man, that's awesome. I want to, but it's not that easy. Just remove it from your heart, people. Do it. But listen, the, the writer here isn't trying to be trite about your life. The, the writer here isn't bypassing your, your anxieties and your insecurities and the pain that's happened to you. He's not bypassing it as, and you're reducing it as though, hey, just get over it. No, no, no. Here's what he's saying. While you're young, while you still have all this strength about you, life has happened to you. Even in the short window that you've been alive, a lot of stuff has happened because we live in a broken world. But when you're still young, when you're still young, seek to deal with your junk honestly now. Deal with it now because the older you get, it's just gonna cost you more. It's just gonna cost, the collateral damage only grows with the more years you live. And so, and so here's the thing, man. I'm a young man. I'm a, part of, I'm a part of this text and who it's speaking to. I'm a part of this. And here's what I know about the temptation of youthfulness, especially among young men, especially among us. What we want to do is we want to present this exterior of being bulletproof. We want to present this facade of well-being while what's really happening underneath is that we're worn out by insecurities and doubt and an uncertainty of who we are and secret addictions. 
that all the while we're exhausting ourselves to cover over them and present a version of ourselves that we wish were true, but it's not. And then what ends up happening because of youthful arrogance is all that's going on and you're saying to yourself, I got this. I got this. I'm not okay now. You'll at least be honest enough with yourself in certain moments. Say, I'm not okay, but I've got this plan. I've got this strategy. I just bought this software. And and, and so I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to lose that person. I don't want to lose those privileges. I'm not going to say anything. What's going to happen is I'm just end up fixing myself and then I'll show up there. And then we're not going to have to worry about this anymore. I'm not okay, but I will be. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Very, very likely, I'm just tracking my own story and knowing humanity. Very likely, the very sins you're struggling with now, the anxieties and insecurities and pain you're grappling with now are the same ones you've been grappling with for years. And despite your best efforts to fix those things now, you still find yourself where you are, but you think there's going to be a new best effort that's going to trump all the other best efforts. You're exhausted, but you're still too proud to reach out for help. And so what this text is coming in to say in the second word of this call to remove, this call to remove, he's saying, hey, listen, let's seek healing now. Let's confess now. Let's get after light. Let's get out of here so that it won't cost us more than it has to later. Let's deal with it now. And not this some sort of half-hearted way that we typically deal with it, where we'll just confess halfway and it ends up happening, we'll get halfway healing because we only confessed halfway in order to protect ourselves from people thinking otherwise about us. And then we're still left with some stuff. But here's, and here's what he's saying and here's what I know in my own life. From my own anxieties, fears, and secret addictions, the things that run deep in us, they're never just uprooted on the first pull. What we want is a quick fix, but, but what he's saying is you're young, you're young. Hey, get after this because you have energy to still pull multiple times and it's gonna take that. It's gonna take regular repentance. It's gonna take some community. It's gonna take some counseling, but get after it because, because a healthy soul and a liberated conscience is worth it. It's worth it. You don't have to stay in vexation. He says, remove it. Remove it. So he goes from this call to rejoice, this call to remove, and then he gives us a third word to the young, this call to remember in 12 verse one. Look at it. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say of them, I have no pleasure in them. And so again, the sagely tone comes forward, right? So Solomon, either this text writer or the one who's influenced it, is now coming forward. He's an old man. He's been around the block. He's seen some things. In fact, we've read about all the things he's seen and done for now 10 previous chapters. We've read about his bustedness. And now he's coming around to say to us, to those of you who are young, young men, young women, in this small window of your life, in this small window of your life, don't forget your creator. Don't forget Jesus now because how you handle now is gonna play out over the next 20 to 30 years. If there were ever a time to bail on prayer, now's not the time. If there were, in your youthfulness, if there were ever a time to bail on God and think you know better, hey, don't do that now. If there were ever a time 
to think that you know better how to please yourself and to organize your life than God does. Don't, just don't do it now. Don't do it now. Because you've seen by now, you don't, but yet you're still believing the lie that you do. And so he's saying, hey, don't forget your creator while you're young because what you deal with now is gonna play out. It's gonna play out. Now, I'm not saying that there's not grace and mercy for that stuff. Like you're just stuck to it. Like you're just living in a, a sentence of judgment for yourself. I'm not saying that, but what he's saying is the patterns and the appetites that we feed right now will be the patterns and the appetites that we live with 10, 15 years from now. There's a trajectory. You've seen this happen. He says, so, so don't forget your creator while you're young. Don't bail now. So one of the things I, I love to do is I, if I get the chance, and I don't get it often, but sit with men and women in their 70s and 80s. I love just to sit and have conversations as, as I'm able and, and just ask this question, hey, if you could do it over, what would you do? If you could get it back, what would you do? And here's consistently the thing that I hear. I wish I would have started following Jesus sooner. I I wish I would have taken my faith more seriously earlier. I I wished in the way that I worked, I wouldn't have done so. There was things I could have given away. There were hours I spent at the office I didn't have to. And I wished I wouldn't have because I could have had more time with my family and I can't get that back now. And this is like person after person after person. This is consistently the thing I hear from those who've seen life. And here's the thing. I don't think they're lying to us. Like we act like they're lying because we act like we know better because we don't do what they say, right? But I don't, it's not like they're it's not like some weird salespeople for God and virtue that they're getting paid for these answers. They're just people who've seen more life and they feel its gift deeper than we do. And so they're saying what's honest. And so again, I'm a young man, I'm just 33 year of our Lord. (laughs) And, and so I know there's a lot of lessons to learn still, but I've seen there's a couple of ways to learn in life. You can learn off the borrowed wisdom of someone else who's seen it and done it. You can learn off borrowed wisdom and let that chasten you and rechannel you, or you can learn from your own pain. So you can learn off borrowed wisdom or your own pain. These are the ways you can learn. And one of the most painful things about being a preacher, one of the most painful things about being a pastor is I'm looking out and I know that for some of you, these things we're saying, like you see it, but it's still falling on deaf ears. Like you hear it, but you don't hear it. And what's gonna end up happening for some of you, you're like, I think I got this, pastor. Thank you very much. And what's gonna end up happening is life is for some of you, just gonna have to kick the trash out of you before you listen. It doesn't have to go that way. It, it doesn't have to. And so, so what he says here, he says, hey, remember your creator, but look, there's one more punch for us young at the end of this verse. He says, before the evil days come, remember your creator before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say of them, I have no pleasure. So this one isn't chipper, but what he says is there's coming a day when you won't want to be alive anymore. There's coming a day, if God gives us enough years that you're going to wake up, if, you're, if you wake up in old age, there's going to be a day when you, when you wake up and you go, ah, I'm alive again. And I don't have a lot of frame of reference for this because I'm not there, but, 
But this week in studying this passage, I'm, I'm just reading it, what it says, that there's coming a day like this. And so I, I spoke with, with one of my wife's grandmothers. She's 90. She's in a nursing home. And I just asked, like, hey, can you speak to this? Is, is, is what this text saying here, is this true? There's coming a day where you have no more pleasure in your years. And, and she said, absolutely. Very often she says she prays for Jesus to take her soon because it hurts to be awake. Very often she says she prays for Jesus to take her in her sleep. And that's not because that she hates life. We'll, we'll bring... We'll, We'll bring our grandkids in the room. We'll bring her grandkids in the room and she lights up. She, she loves it. She's not that she hates being alive, but what she now sees deeper than any of us in this room and, and folks this age, they see this, that there's more to life than just getting all you can while you can in a broken down world. There's just more. So she's not trying to bail on us. She's just saying, Jesus, take me soon because I know it doesn't end with you. It just gets started with you. And so he says, remember your creator. So don't waste your skipping and your jumping. Don't waste your life and your strength on things that, that will return back void. He says, whatever you find your hands to do, right? Whatever you find, this whole thing, rejoice, young man, remove vexation. Whatever you find, live, work, love, play, run, get married, raise kids, do all of it, but do it with your creator in mind and do it for the glory of your honest king. These are the words he gives to the young a call to rejoice, a call to remove, a call to remember. But now as we end this book, stay with me to finish, is he pans out and now he's gonna bring us all in the picture. So he's speaking to the young, but now he speaks to young and to old, to young and all. Look at 13. He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And so for 10 chapters, 11 chapters, we've seen this good life experiment propped up. He's chased everything he could get his hands on and more times than we would have loved to have heard it. He said, it's meaningless. And you're like, yeah, I know I heard it. No, it's meaningless. Yeah, no, I heard it. Yeah, it's meaningless. Yeah, no, I heard it. But this is what he's done. And now he says, all has been heard. All has been heard. And this is the end of the matter. What is all of this coming to? What are the great immovable foundations of life? He gives the remedy to the good life in a single sentence with two commands. The good life that all of us are chasing comes in a single sentence with two commands. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. The great immovable foundation stones of life, fear God and keep his commands. He says, fear God. So revere him, honor him, set him apart in your hearts and your minds as ultimate. This is the good kind of fear. So not a trepidation, This is the good kind of fear where what you're saying when you say, I fear God is I fear pursuing any life outside of him because it's not there. I I fear God. I fear pursuing any life outside of him because it's not there. He says, fear God. And the second command to the good life, he leads us in a right view of God, but then he leads us to right relationship with God. He says, keep his commands. Keep his commands. And so the great pursuit of this life, God is not commanding you. We don't love that word. We hate it, in fact. But he's not commanding you to take joy from you. He's commanding that you might know joy in life to the full. The great pursuit of this life is to love, to know, and obey the word of God. To know it, to love it, and to obey it. Psalm 19 brings these two great commands into view. 
Psalm 19, verse 8, it says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And then down in verse 11, Moreover, by them, the commandments. Moreover, by the commandments, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. So God never returns back empty. And so he has one more sentence, and this is where the whole thing comes to a close because he says, fear God, keep his commands. But now in the last sentence, the very last one, he's gonna say there's urgency to this. So it's not like here's just Dr. Phil advice, take it or leave it. Like there's urgency to this in 14 in the big close. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so now for the second time in this passage, he brings up judgment. Like, I can't avoid it. I've got to talk about it. He brings up judgment. And again, he's, all book long, he's talked about life under the sun. This is all we have and it's all meaningless. But now at the end of the book, he says, no, 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 there's, there's life beyond the sun. There's something else other than this. God is in view. And he says, there is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a God in heaven who rules the world. And there's a life to come after this one. And so the message of Ecclesiastes to this point has been that nothing matters. But all of a sudden, at the end of this book, he brings God into view. And now the message of Ecclesiastes of nothing matters is flipped on its head because now God's in view. God is real. Therefore, everything matters. Everything matters, how you live your life, what you do with your life, and why you live it out. All of that has eternal significance. So it's not that nothing matters. That's true if it's just under the sun. But now God is in picture and there's life beyond the sun. So now it all matters. Everything matters because everything is now subject to the verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret thing. So there's coming a day soon and very soon, when every brokenness will be restored. Amen? There's coming a day soon and very soon where every injustice will be repaid and made to right. And there's coming a day soon and very soon when every thought we've had, every word, every deed, whether good or evil, every secret thing will be brought to light. And so just in case we we bypass this and go, oh, that's just an Old Testament thing. Like, that's scary, God. Lest we do that, the New Testament speaks to this very same thing in Acts 17. Because this day of judgment has now become all the more sure because of the person of Jesus. Acts 17. The times of ignorance that God has overlooked. But now, but now, he commands every people, all people everywhere to repent. 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all of us. This day is coming. And he gave us assurance by raising him, that man, from the dead. And so this day is fixed. This day is coming. Standing before God is a reality for all of us. But notice. The same Jesus who will one day serve as the great judge is also the same merciful son of God who has taken judgment for sins, not his own, but for all those who would trust him.
This is the promise of John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears me and believes in him who sent me, he has eternal life. Look at what he says. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. He's passed from meaningless and vanity to life, real life. So for those who trust the broken body, shed blood, and empty tomb of Jesus, your judgment has already fallen. That's the gospel. Your judgment has already fallen, not on your head, but the head of the great son of God. And so now, so now, the fear of the Lord that we're commanded of here is no longer fright, it's freedom. It turns to worship because now we never have to fear because of Jesus, we never have to fear being separated from him again. Now the commands of the Lord that used to be our dread, that used to expose us, now they serve as our great guide and our great our great protector that leads us into life deeper and deeper that's truly life. So now the good life, the life that we're chasing, the life that we've been seeking out in Ecclesiastes and all over our own experience, the good life is not something that you have to go find. The gospel says you once were lost, but now you've been found. But now you've been found. And so the whole duty of man because of Jesus turns to the whole delight of man. All has been heard. This is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. For nowhere else do you find life.